Great to be here and to see all of you here today. Um, you know, I can just feel the energy in this church, I, and that's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. I was just talking to Tim back there this morning about, uh, about that, actually, and I just felt it during the worship music this morning, and um, just great to be here today as uh, just being in fellowship with one another, and uh, being here is important, and I don't want to spoil Pastor Duncan's sermon, but that is a, a big part of what it's about, is, is just being in fellowship, being part of the body, and, uh, and being here present with one another, to be here through our trials, and whatever else we may be going through this morning. So I just want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you for the visitors that are here today. I appreciate you guys checking us out. Um, and uh, today's uh, message is going to come from Acts 2, starting at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, fellow and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge your design and the importance of being in fellowship with the body. Give us the desire to be in relationships with each other, whereby we may grow in you and your will might be fulfilled in us. Show us what steps to take to see that, that this comes about, Lord. Thank you for this day that you have given us to, to experience Christ through God the Father. We ask as we come into your presence today um, that you may remove any distractions from us that may get in the way of us worshiping you in truth. Give us a heart to accept the message today as we learn the utter importance of what it means to be part of the body. We pray this morning for Pastor Duncan as he brings us this message that it would be as if you spoke it yourself. That everything said here would be truth from you. Forgive any pettiness and arrogance and self-indulgence that we may have as we come here this morning. Lord, let us live for you that all other things are a distant second. We pray for the lost and the unchurched. We pray for North Shore Church, the body of Christ. We pray for those who are suffering from various ailments. Uh, we pray today for uh, Rob Lobbs that you would give him peace and healing and then that the chemotherapy would, uh, would be taking an effect, Lord, if that be your will. We pray for Allison, too, as well, that she can support him well, God, and just give her uh, rest and, and peace and patience in knowing uh, as you as her personal Savior, as their personal Savior. We pray for um, Andy Fendrick and his family, that, uh, God, that you're just getting them better. Uh, we pray for John Hickson for uh, just better lung capacity, that you would just be with him, God, just be with him this morning. For Jeff... Uh, for Jeff's mom, Lord, uh, as she is also, uh, she's battling cancer, God, that you would just continue to help her uh, get better. We had a good praise report this morning from Jeff. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray for Michelle, for her hip pain that she's experiencing. Before she gets surgery, God, that you would just minimize or even take it away, God. Just help her to not suffer through that. Uh, we pray for anyone else that's going through anything right now, any tough times. Um, 
We bring all these re uh, prayer requests to you, Father, who is the healer of all um, and comforter in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Acts 2, 42 to 47 is actually where we're headed next time, Lord willing. But truth in the scripture is kind of graded. In other words, in order to understand this piece well and appreciate it, you kind of have to understand this piece before that. And so today we're going to make preparations so that when we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, we'll be able to really appreciate it and understand it better today. This morning, we are taking um, a couple weeks back from the story of David, his life, and reign that we've been looking at in 2 Samuel. We want to address what the Bible teaches about the Church of Christ. Last time I preached a couple weeks ago, I spoke on the nature of the church and how the nature of the church implies that believers make a commitment to the local church. Last week, Andy followed that up with some nuts and bolts of what that actually looks like from Romans chapter 12. We want to focus on the church for several reasons. First, because Paul tells Timothy in Timothy chapter 3 that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And because the church is the pillar and foundation of truth in the world, that means we have a call as Christ's church to war against all things that are opposed to the truth. That's part of the implication of being the pillar and foundation of truth. And one area where the truth of Scripture has been under attack, sometimes overtly, sometimes through just an awful lot of neglect, is through the spread of a destructive and unbiblical conception of the church. And that is the fact that the church is simply a group of people that gather once a week to worship and then learn about God. That's a common understanding of the church, and that is so incredibly inadequate compared to what the Bible says about the church. It's, it's not quite as bad as saying Jesus Christ was a fine man, but it's almost as bad. This unbiblical understanding of the church has been grievous on many levels in terms of how it's worked out. One way that it's worked out is it's greatly lowered our estimation of the important role of the church in bringing us to maturity in Christ. As we said before, growing to spiritual maturity is a group project. Okay, We saw last time from Ephesians chapter 4 that we grow and make spiritual progress as a group. And if you're making good spiritual progress, that's going to affect me and vice versa. And if I'm not making good spiritual progress, that's going to affect you because we're interdependent in the church of Jesus Christ. And most of what the Bible teaches about the church, 80% of it is about the local church. So that's not just pie in the sky by and by some theological abstraction. No, this is about where we live today. Because this truth about the spiritual maturity in the church being something we do together, because that's been lost, that's tended toward making many believers view the church as optional. There are more and more believers who say, I love Jesus, I just don't have any reason to go out for the church. They don't see the in absolutely unbreakable connection there. They certainly, many others don't see it as something that's 
crucial for their spiritual health. Many people are there that call themselves Christians. Many of the problems in local churches, and of course there are so many, many of them can be traced to wrong and unbiblical thinking about the church. And much wrong thinking about the church is traceable to wrong thinking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, okay? But it also flows in the opposite direction, and by that I mean if the church is the body of Christ and you have a wrong view of the church as the body of Christ, that can't help but distort your understanding of the head of the body, Jesus Christ. So this is so important because it's related to the biblical understanding of who God is, okay? The sad irony in the believing church is that we mentally agree to many of the biblical truths about the church, but we haven't thought them through in terms of, okay, if that's true, what are the logical implications for my life? How should that be affecting me? For instance, we quoted Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 3 where he calls the church the pillar and foundation of truth in this world. Okay, but how many of us have thought about the absolutely enormous implications that has for the mission of the church in the world, but also across the street? It has enormous implications for that. Another example of this is the aspect of the church that we want to look at today and next week, and that is the church is the family of God. A little cross-pollination here. If you end up enjoying this sermon or feel like it's beneficial to you, this is a doctrinal sermon on the doctrine of the church as the family of God. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in Sunday school. Just cross-pollination there. Now, no one here would doubt that the church is the family of God, okay? That's not new information to any of us. Many of us even talk about our church family. But how many of us have actually thought through the powerful implications of what it actually means if the church is our family, understanding that biblically defined? The truth is understanding the teaching on the church as the family of God is crucial for us to know if we're to really understand how God wants us to relate to one another, okay? What does it look like to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? What does that look like in terms of the relationships that I have in the church that's much informed by our understanding of the church as the family of God? Show me a believer who knows and lives out the implications of the church as the family of God, and I will show you a believer who would never in a million years identify the church as a group of people we gather with every Sunday to worship God and learn about him. That's not happening for that person. For this morning, we want to look at two biblical truths related to the church as the family of God. First, we want to look into the scriptures as they reveal the reality, the reality of the church is the family of God, and second, the glory of the church is the family of God. So our first truth is the biblical reality of the family of God, and what I mean by that is we need to first establish in all of our minds so that we have the same understanding that the Bible does indeed speak of the church as God's family and to see just how prevalent and powerful that family metaphor is of the church in the New Testament. We have to do that first. 
And there's two texts in the New Testament that speak explicitly of the church as the family of God. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, the word the ESV translates household. If you have an NIV version, you'll know it's translated family. They're the same word, okay? 1 Timothy 3:15, which we've already quoted, Paul has been talking about the qualification of deacons in the local church, and he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, he's talking about the church as family. Now, those are the only two explicit references to the church's family, but there are hundreds of implicit references to the church as the family of God in the New Testament. And we see this in the astonishing number of times that the biblical authors refer to believers using family terms. In fact, mainly believers are referred to as family members in the New Testament. There are other designations, but one of the most common is family members. The most common familial word in the New Testament is the word translated brother. It's sometimes translated rightly brothers and sisters because the intention is not to limit this to males. The intention is within that culture, brother meant brothers and sisters. The word translated brother is used only a handful of times in the New Testament to mean blood brother or genetic or biological brother only a very few times. The overwhelming majority of times this word is translated brother, it means the spiritual relationship that believers have in Christ. The use of brother to indicate two people's relationship in Christ is found more than 250 times in the New Testament, more than 250 times in the New Testament. Now, if the New Testament uses the word brother more than 250 times to refer how believers are to relate to one another, it would seem to follow that we, that should shape our understanding of how we think about one another and how we relate to one another. Unlike some other commonly used biblical words, the word brother is used in every section of the New Testament. Some very commonly used words only appear in Paul, or they only appear in James, or they only appear in the Gospel. The word brother appears in every strata, every layer of the New Testament. It occurs in the Gospels, it occurs in Acts, it occurs in the general and pastoral epistles, Paul and John's writing. Every level, it's found prevalently there. It saturates the New Testament, and that implies that this designation should be one that we all should be using. This is just the language of the Bible. When people hear brother, they may think all sorts of different things in the church. They may think, well, that's rather archaic, don't you think? Or, oh, you're trying to put on as if we're actually closer than we really are. No, it's just a biblical term. The Apostle Paul, just to give you very few examples, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, all the brothers send you greetings. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. James writes to his audience in James 1, 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. John writes in 1 John 3, 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So the apostles are calling the people in the church 
brothers or brothers and sisters, which I think is really encouraging because they're placing themselves on the same level. Even though the apostles obviously have a unique role in church history, they're not looking down on the people in the church. They're brothers and sisters to them. Though they play this unique role in the family of God, any believer anywhere is just as much a part of God's family as Paul was, as James was, as all of the other apostles. In New Testament times, the common way people in the church referred to one another was through this term brother and sister because they understood the church was a family. If you read the church's family into Acts 242 to 47, you'll get a lot more insight into what was going on there. Although all believers everywhere are brothers and sisters, the New Testament again uses those terms almost exclusively within the context of the local church. Talking about local churches. All of those references that we just read, they were written to local churches. You my, my beloved brothers in the church at Ephesus or in the churches in Asia Minor. Although all believers everywhere are brothers and sisters, we need to see it as something that we have with, in common with one another predominantly. The fact that we in the West don't regularly use this Holy Spirit-inspired designation, brother or sister, is probably a sign of how little we've internalized this truth that the church is the family of God and how far we are from living out the reality of the church as the family of God. I know one church very well, Every Sunday after communion, when they do communion, they sing the, the chorus, the family of God. Some of you know that. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by the blood, join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I know that church very well, and many of the people in that church sing that with great robustness and bravado, and many of the people in that church, for them, their understanding is, yeah, I'm glad I'm a part of the family of God, but my real family, my real family, the one I don't put air quotes around, <laughs> my real family or my biological family, those people that share some DNA with me, that's my real family. Well, on a human level, on a human level, because our genetic families are the people we spend the most time around, we know them the best, then it's certainly understandable to think of them a little bit differently than our church family. But that says more about how little we spend time with the church family than it does how much we spend time with our biological families, as we'll talk later on. But the difference between our biological families and the church family that's not represented in the Bible, this profound connection we have with our spiritual family that's taught in the New Testament is not differentiated from our biological family. And that leads to our second truth from Scripture about the church as the family of God, and that is the glory, the glory of the family of God. We use the term in whose name we pray, amen.